This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. One of the themes that I think you'll pick up on today is a lot of gratitude for colleagues who work either within this company or across the industry. So let's bring in another colleague who does phenomenal work on the AMI-audio side of the AMI family. Voices of the Walrus airs Sundays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the producer of that program and it's a preview of a couple of this week's articles. Hey, good morning, Don. That's very gracious of you, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> well, Don, t- today's, I think, a perfect example. We just spoke to Mike Omelis of APTN. Him and his colleagues do phenomenal work at that TV station. We're talking to you. We'll be talking to Stephen Scott of Double Tap Daily later in the show. Just so many people do so much work that we're just happy that we get to talk about just a sliver of the incredible work that you do. So let's jump in to the first article, a really interesting one by J.R. Patterson yeah. called Seed of Mistrust. It took a look at a half a million dollars that went missing from a rural Manitoba municipality. Give me the overview of this story and the criminal activity that occurred. Well, so sad. Uh, When city staff in Westlake Gladstone, a rural municipality in southwestern Manitoba, returned to work in January 2020, after the Christmas break, they discovered $500,000 missing from local coffers. The money had been siphoned off in an alleged cyber attack over the final weeks of December and the early days of January. Behind the scenes was a flurry of phone calls and meetings with lawyers and cybercrime experts, but the outward appearance was one of normality. Terrible, terrible thing to happen to a small community. Yeah, half a million dollars going from a small community's coffers is a lot, a lot of money with a huge impact. So how was the town informed of what happened, like the town itself, not the officials, but the people of the town? Yeah, so um, nine months went by for nine months that... Yeah. Well, okay, there's two sides to the story. Uh, For nine months, the municipality held back information from residents who knew nothing of the incident, not a peep. Then one afternoon in October 2020, Mayor Scott uh, Kinley and Chief Administrative Officer Coralie Smith held a small press conference to a crowd of onlookers, and of course, these are mostly rural farmers, uh, in a boardroom in the municipality's offices. Kinley read out a prepared statement revealing the loss of the money, which he said had been removed in 47 electronic withdrawals of nearly $10,000 each. The total was not insignificant by any means. The municipality's annual budget hovers around $7 million. Half a million dollars is, for instance, roughly the price of a new road grader of which the municipality was in desperate need of. Mm. So they were told nine months later, um, the other side of the story is that, of course, those those people on the council were trying desperately, obviously, 
imagine the shock they had. Oh, of course, uh, yeah, to, of course. To try to find the money, they employed uh, certain people, cyber experts and whatnot. But this is by no means, Dave, uh, the exception. A lot, you know, you hear about the huge accounts, uh, you know, the ransom accounts and things like that with major, you know, mega companies and whatnot. But there's an awful lot of this cyber crime going on with uh, with smaller accounts too. The nine month, the nine month delay, Don. I can see where that would relate to the title of this article, though, which is "Seed of Mistrust." Mistrust, because, because it's not to imply that necessarily the city officials were involved in some kind of corruption, nor were they involved necessarily in some kind of cover up while they were doing the investigation. But it's a reminder about the importance of transparency when it comes to yes. public funds. That just generally speaking. Keeping people in the dark is always a bad idea. It's always True. a poor idea from a public official. So what was the response of the public and how has that impacted the relationship with the city government? Well, it wasn't good, Dave. I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, for months after the announcement of the missing uh, money, wild theories, of course, uh, went around the townsfolk. Thieves were uh, that there were thieves that were disgruntled municipality workers or corrupt elected officials or councillors, um, or it was a con man. Uh, people offered evidence, both true and uh, false, uh, about theories that they had, and of course. As you say, when there's a vacuum of information, uh, you know, these wild theories just spread like wildfire. Uh, there was no sign of the money being returned and answers from the municipal council weren't easily forthcoming. So to your point about the, the title of the article being Seeds of Mistrust, what happens is, is that if people are not transparent, and I say this sitting on two boards, I, I am a director on two boards within Toronto, one of which is a, a, a condo board and mm -hmm. also one uh, uh, one is a, um, a um, charity board for, mm -hmm. for a school. And... Uh, you have to be you no matter the the matter the 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 negativity of whatever it is as soon as you've kind of got your facts i mean it's it's not good to announce things without facts i mean that i agree with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you you have to get your your ducks in a row that's for sure but then you have to you have to let people know well, especially because if there's trickles or leaks as well, right, that that's the, that becomes the thing. If a few people who weren't necessarily supposed to know that information find out that information, all of a sudden the gossip starts and all yes. of a sudden it starts taking away and chipping away at the credibility of the people on the board. I've also sat on a few charity boards uh, over my life, Don, and there was one in particular where the where the where the actual charity was in dire, dire dire financial straits and they oh, were asking dear. me as a member of a media organization should we talk about this and i said absolutely you have to tell people that you're in dire straits if you want something to happen because if you just end up folding up tomorrow or end up going bankrupt and putting up putting up a, a board on the door on thursday then then people are going to think that maybe something more nefarious went on rather than getting ahead of it sitting down, sending out a press release, talking to people, being up front. And in the end, that charity is still alive and kicking today because of that moment of honesty. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. I couldn't agree with you more. You have to be forthcoming. You have to present the facts. 
you have to be completely unemotional about it. Um, you know, a lot of these cyber attacks, well, I mean, the majority of these cyber attacks have absolutely nothing, nothing to do with the people who are serving on the boards or the treasurers or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not a criminal thing. It's not a corruption thing. It's basically the, 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 this digital society that we live in and how easily it's, it's getting, uh, you know, to, to, to do this kind of criminal activity. Mm -hmm. Don, let's jump to a different article by really, in my mind, one of the best journalists in the whole country. His name's Justin Ling. He wrote an article called False Convictions, exploring why Canadians are languishing behind bars for a crime they did not commit. So, Don, I'm going to start with a, a very easy question to answer. <laughs> Does Canada's justice system have a habit of putting people behind bars for crimes they did not commit? Okay, well, let me preface this by saying we're not as bad as the states. <laughs> well, that's, 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 like, that's like the Canadian mantra. Well, we're not as bad as America. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Canada's justice system, system does have a bit of a habit of putting people behind bars for crime that they did not connect, commit. We know about the high-profile cases, um, you know, the, the, the really high-profile cases like the David Mill guards and things like that. Um, but there are many, actually, that fly under the radar of media coverage. It's no surprise that some of the strongest advocates of judicial, judicial reform have been the wrongfully convicted themselves. Uh, David Milgaard spent 23 years, as we know, in prison for the rape and murder that he did not commit. And even though his conviction was squashed in 1992, he was not formally exonerated until 1997 when he received an official apology from the Saskatchewan government. Two years later, he also received $10 million in compensation for his time in jail. But obviously, he um, has been very, uh, um, very aware of what has happened to him and mm. what is happening in the courts. And over the time that uh, he, he's in, been involved, he's also uh, um, tried to um, bring this uh, issue to the light with mm -hmm. the media. Yeah, when, when he passed away last year, we shared a lot of audio on the show of people reflecting on the impact that he's had in the justice system to bring this issue into a greater sense of awareness. Even still, the, the issue systemically persists. So why are yes. overturning wrongful convictions, why is it so difficult? Well, um, issues at the root of this problem, this, as you say, systemic and broad and problem are um, individual prosecutors and cops can't cope, um, can't, sorry, can't hope to com uh, completely fix this. And why? People languish in prison because of eyewitness errors, uh, false confessions, jailhouse informants, or faulty forensics. Uh, but a flawed justice system putting innocent people in jail is only one part of the problem. The other is the overturning uh, those mistaken convictions is nearly impossible. Those incarcerated who believe their cases haven't been uh, just uh, judged fairly often lack the resources and support while facing massive bureaucra bureaucratic hurdles. And of course, that makes sense, right? They're, they're probably in the, the, the courts or the, the, the jail system because of the fact that they were not necessarily um, the most affluent of people and that they had, uh, you know, problems um, with, let's say, poverty or minor crime to begin with. And then they were indicted for a more major crime mm -hmm. and they, of course, were innocent. So, Don, we know the issue persists. What is the government doing to try and exonerate the innocent? 
Well, after Justin Trudeau won his re-election um, in uh, 2019, he instructed Justice Minister David Lametti to make it easier, this is a quote, make it easier and faster for potentially wrongful convicted peoples to have their applications reviewed, end quote. Almost three years on, all the Trudeau government unfortunately has managed to do is pr pr produce an extensive report. This one released in 2021, um, uh, prepared by Harry Lafontaine, uh, oh, sorry, Harry, um, a correction, Laforme, the first Indigenous judge of an appeals court in Canada. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, the report has been done. Uh, they spoke to 200 people. Uh, these people were exonerees, plus crime victims, plus police officers, uh, prosecutors, defense lawyers, legal aid officials, judges, and forensic scientists. And they did uh, quite an extensive report, but the report provides the most comprehensive language yet on the devastating and life-altering harms of these wrongful dismissals and on the dire need for independent commission so that we can re uh, reverse some of these convictions. Don, sometimes when you were legally blind, you end up having brushes with fame that you don't even realize. I was at a wedding in 2018 and I had a beer with someone named, an older gentleman named David. And we hung out and we chatted, we laughed, and then we went our own separate ways. I later found out that I was having a beer with the justice minister at a wedding. And I didn't even know it because no. I'm so legally blind. Oh, my God, Dave. Wow, that is some kind of story. What can I say? I'm a power broker, Don, through and through. Uh, Don, all the best <laughs> to you. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you. Uh, we'll talk to you uh, next week, right? We're talking to you next week, yeah. are we? Yeah, yeah great, awesome. Yeah, uh, I, ca I can't yeah. keep track with all the stat I, holidays. I know Don. It's, it's because of the holiday with the indigenous. Yeah, I know it's difficult. Everybody's having a bit of a problem with that, but yeah. no, we'll, next week's for sure. Excellent, Don. We'll talk to you then. Okay. That's Don Dickinson, producer of the reading program Voices of the Walrus, which you can find Sundays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.